we are going to be looking at um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 is the main passage. Um, if you remember, some of you may remember, uh, I don't even know when it was, but a few months ago I preached on Hebrews chapter 9. And so a lot of what we're going to be talking about is based on that, but I'll, I'll recap it and uh, we'll make sure we're on the same track. So Hebrews chapter 9, well, first of all, Hebrews talks a lot about Jesus Christ, which is a good thing, right? Talks a lot about Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 9, it talks about Jesus as being the high priest who entered the most holy place um, ahead of us. In the Old Testament, that's what the high priest needed to do. Once a year, only the high priest, and we talked about that, that it was only once a year, it was only from the tribe of Levi, it was only a man, and it was only a priest, and it was actually only the high priest. So it became the holiest of holiest, the, the most ceremonially clean person, was the only person who could enter for only once a year. And the Bible tells us that he couldn't enter without having blood to cover his own sins. So he had to sacrifice, I think it was a, a sheep, a lamb for his own sins, and he had to go in there with a goat and a bull for the sins of the people. And so it was just such a process. It was only once a year, and the, the, the most holy place, of course, was where God's presence was the strongest, where God's presence really was. And so, of course, they had the, the, the cloud, the pillar, of cloud and the pillar of fire that followed them in the wilderness. Then the, in the temple, the cloud came down on the day that the temple was dedicated, right? But God's presence was the thickest, you could say, in the most holy place. And you couldn't enter the most holy place lightly or you would die. They had to tie bells on the priest and tie a rope on his waist. And if they, didn't, if they heard the bells stop ringing, they knew something bad happened and they'd have to drag him out of there. So... We're going to be talking about that, but as well in, in chapter 9, it goes on to say that not only was Jesus the priest, the high priest who entered in before us, but he was also the sacrifice. It says that he entered by his own blood, whereas the priest had to enter by the blood of bulls, goats, and calves. Um, Jesus entered by his own blood. And not only did he enter by his own blood, but the sacrifice for all the people, which is us, was himself as well. So Jesus was the greater sacrifice, and he was also the greater priest, right? All right, so that's what chapter 9 is all about, and I, I preached on that. Um, hopefully you, you, you're aware of it, and um, but we're going to approach this next passage. So I'll, I'll read uh, the first few verses, starting in verse 19, Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. I'm going to stop there. So we have confidence to enter the most holy place. So because of what Jesus did, uh, there was, first of all, in the Old Testament, there was not much confidence entering the most holy place. I don't even think the high priest was very confident every year when he entered the most holy place because if you messed up something and you weren't ceremonially clean the way God commanded you to be, or if your family had sinned or whatever, you know, he had to, that's why he had to offer a sacrifice right before he went in. So I don't think there was much confidence there, but, but the Bible tells us, and Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, that we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Why? By the blood of Jesus. 
by a new and living way open for us. So, first of all, I want to talk about Jesus as priest. As priest, Jesus entered the most holy place, right? God's presence, once for all. Right? That was it. That's what the Bible said. He, he did it once. It said he didn't have to keep going like the high priest had to once a year. Doesn't, he didn't have to do that. He entered once for all because the sacrifice he offered was good for all. Um, so as priest, he entered once for all. As sacrifice, he was the perfect lamb without spot or blemish, which covered all, which is why he's called the Lamb of God. Okay, I hope you realize that. He's called the Lamb of God because... The Bible talks all about a lamb being without spot or blemish, and we see many times that's what's what, what was offered. And sometimes they offered a lamb that was had defects. God said, I don't want that. I want your best. Right? And this Thanksgiving offering, that's why I'm, I'm thinking about that. God doesn't want what we can do. Right? He wants our best. And God has always wanted that. And I, it's not too much for him to ask. So Jesus, though, was God's best, his only son. And God gave him up for us. And Jesus lived the perfect life here on earth. It, didn't, not, not, it wasn't the perfect life as in it wasn't so great to him. But he lived a sinless life. He remained a lamb without spot or blemish. And he is an eternal being, an eternal spirit. And when that life was offered up as a sacrifice for us, it was able to cover our eternal sins and our eternal punishments. Amen? Amen? So Jesus as priest, Jesus as sacrifice. But Jesus as the curtain. This one is an odd one. Uh, Jesus, I, don't, I think this is the only passage that Jesus is said to be a curtain. Um, but if you remember, in um, the, three, the synoptic Gospels is what they're called, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right? John is different from them. That's the only way I remember. John is crazy. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share a lot of the same stories. And in all three of them, it talks about the veil in the temple being torn from top to bottom. Right? Matthew 27, 51 is one of those verses. It says that the veil was torn in two. And the guards who were watching it, they said, surely he was the son of God. They realized, oh my word. The veil just got torn in two. That, that veil is what protected us and, and kept us from being open before God's presence because we would all die. God's presence dwelled behind that curtain, and now that curtain is torn. Big deal. And this verse tells us that Jesus is the curtain. It says that his body is the curtain. John 14, 6, Jesus tells Nathaniel or Philip. Can't remember. Uh, he tells one of his disciples, all of his disciples, uh, as it was, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one enters the throne room of God except through him. Even those sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament foretold of Jesus is sacrifice. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So through that curtain, the curtain of the body of Jesus Christ, that is how we enter into God's presence. curtain was removed and it was replaced with a greater entrance. So it wasn't, uh, yeah, this is what I wanted to get at. It wasn't that the curtain was 
removed only, right? But it was replaced with a greater curtain because we still, we still need something. We still need a mediator as it was between God and us, between God and people, and that's Jesus. That's why Jesus is the curtain. Amen? Amen. All right. But not only does it say that he was the curtain, but he also became the cleansing that we needed. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4, um, in talking about the high priest, I think one of the high priests went into the temple and died, right? That, that, or into the most holy place and died. And God said, all right, we need to fix this. And so he gave Moses commands to give to Aaron, Leviticus 16, 4. And he, he tells Aaron what he needs to do in order to enter the most holy place. And you can see he had to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. So these are special garments. I'm pretty sure he only wore them once a year. And he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Now, the washing with water is all throughout the Bible because it's all throughout our life. We were supposed to wash ourselves. Amen? Um, so Jesus was that cleansing. As Aaron needed to be washed and pure, so we need to be washed and pure in order to enter into God's presence. And we can't just wash ourselves with water. It's not good enough. We need to be washed by Jesus. That initial uh, sacrifice that the high priest had to offer for him and his family only, that's what Jesus is for us so that we can enter into God's presence. Jesus told Peter... Um, on the night of the Passover, right, and the, the Last Supper, Jesus told Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And that, that sounds like so severe, but it makes perfect sense when we think of it this way. In, unless we allow Jesus to wash us, unless we allow his blood to take control of our lives and have power over us and to have authority over us, we can't have any part in that. We can't have any part in the presence of God, and we shouldn't want to, because the presence of God is a fearful thing for those for the wicked. For those who are living in darkness, they hate the light because their evil deeds will be exposed. That's why Jesus told Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And then Peter's response after that is, then, then wash everything. <laughs> And I think that is the proper response, even though Jesus wasn't about that at that night. <laughs> so, the main point here, Jesus has done so much for us. Yes, he has. Okay, and I, we, can't, we can't forget that. And I've told people so many times, like, when, when I was in college, I was learning about writing sermons, and they said every sermon should point to the cross, and every sermon should lead to basically a salvation message, and every sermon... And I thought, well, I mean, not everyone. Because if you're doing a sermon about a certain sin or certain temptation, then it's not going to necessarily... I was wrong. Man, if you read the Bible the way it's supposed to be read, everything points to Jesus. Every single thing. If we, uh, you can take a random verse in Leviticus about how you got to wash yourself this type of way and how a woman shouldn't do this and a man shouldn't do this and, um, or so-and-so is supposed to be punished this way. It, it all points to Jesus. It can confuse us sometimes, and sometimes it doesn't make the most sense, but it all points to Jesus. And so we can't continue on in, in a, a we can't continue on in this church 
unless we recognize that everything is about Jesus. Right? Jesus needs to be the center of it all, including this sermon, including our times of worship in song, including our homes, and at the very center of everything about this church. Jesus needs to be at the center of it all. So we need to recognize that, and I think we do. So we're going to move on. The next point, though, and this is where it starts to apply to us, because that, that's a bunch of stuff Jesus did, and it's a bunch of theological stuff, and it helps us change our mindset maybe. But all this that Jesus has done gives us confidence to come before God, something we shouldn't have. We should not have confidence in standing before the living God. The Bible says it's a dreadful thing to be in the hands of the living God, right? Talk, referring to sinners. I think it actually may say that um, in Hebrews right, right after this. Not only can we come before God because of what Jesus did, but we can do it with confidence and boldness, and the Bible tells us to do so. Hebrews 4.16 tells us to enter boldly into the throne room of grace. The throne room of grace is nothing else except for the very presence of God. And we are not necessarily in that perfect presence yet. Um, but every day when we enter into prayer, we are entering into that. And that's why the Bible commands us to do so. And someday we'll really be in the presence of the Almighty God. We'll see him face to face, and it won't be a dreadful thing. Right? Which is nuts. You guys ever heard, probably, at least in my opinion, it's the most famous sermon ever, um, but one of the most famous sermons ever, for sure, by Jonathan Edwards, um, is titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It, man, it's a convicting sermon. It's, he's a really good preacher, Jonathan Edwards. If you ever, his, I think like all of his sermons are available online. You can just read them. Um, it's a crazy sermon, and it talks about sinners being in the hands of an angry God, and it's not a good thing. And it talks about it. it's a dreadful thing, and it's a dreadful day when you're caught in the hands of the living God, and you're a sinner. And it's all true. But man, how much greater how much better a day it is for those who have been washed and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we can enter boldly in the throne room of grace. A proper perspective on what Jesus has done for us helps us to understand where we are before God. Right? So many times we can emphasize our weakness and it helps us to recognize you know, how weak, wholly rely on God and how we are nothing before God and all those things are true but as soon as Jesus washes us and cleanses us we are chi- children of God and the Lord loves his children and it's amazing and it can be hard for us to believe that someone could love us so much that the God of the universe could love us so much but it's true some Uh, 73, 27 through 28, says that those who are unfaithful will be destroyed. Again, it's not a good thing. But as for me, and this is, uh, I don't know who wrote this psalm. I didn't look, should have. As for me, it is good to draw near to God. That's, That's just crazy to me. It's good for us to draw near to the living God with all power and all authority who desires perfect holiness and his, whose, whose standard is perfection, that we can come before him and say, 
God, I'm here without worrying because our nakedness and our shame is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Revelations talks about um, being clothed in white robes. Man, that's a beautiful, beautiful image. Perfectly white robes. Talks about being washed as white as snow. Man, we need it. So this gives us confidence in coming before God. And I want to get a little more specific here. This gives us confidence in prayer. He who promised is faithful. That's found in the Bible a lot of times. God is faithful is found a lot of times. Sarah believed in this. Um, in Hebrews chapter 11, if you go into the next one, Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith, is what they call it. It's about a bunch of people who had a lot of faith. And if you made the hall of faith, good for you, because there's a lot of awesome people in there. Sarah actually makes it. And I feel like a lot of times we, we don't give Sarah much credit because she laughed at God when God said that she would have a, a son, right? But one of my professors at college pointed out that um, clearly, she, <laughs> clearly she had to also participate in this adventure with Abraham, right? It wasn't, it wasn't just a, a miracle that God gave it. God said, Abraham and Sarah, go have a child. So she had to be a participant in this. And she had a lot more faith than we give her credit for. And it, this, this Hebrews clarifies that and says that Sarah believed, and because she believed, she conceived Isaac. Romans chapter 4, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 talks about Abraham as well. But Romans chapter 4 talks about Abraham and tells us that because Abraham believed in the God who could raise his son from the dead, when he was told to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And he believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Because he believed in a God who could raise the dead, that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So even an Old Testament character, because he had faith in a God who could do the impossible, had righteousness. He believed, he, he didn't necessarily know about Jesus. He didn't know what it would look like, but he knew God had promised redemption, and he knew that God could do anything, and that's all it took. And that, right, that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, but Romans chapter 4 tells us that that righteousness that Abraham got is not just for him. It's not just for the Old Testament. It's not just for this special person, but it's for us as well. Faith in the God who can raise the dead is what is required. It's for all who believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, and that's us. Now, we are on the other side of it, we're on the future side of it, but it still takes faith to believe in something we haven't seen. And even those who saw it didn't see what was happening. They didn't see your sin being covered, but it was. And it takes faith to believe in these things. But when we believe in a God who is faithful, we can have confidence in our prayers because Abraham and I and Sarah wanted a child. And God gave it to them because of their faith and their confidence that God would do what he had promised. And for us as well, man, you got to know what the promises of God are. The scripture tells us a lot of promises. He promises good. <laughs> and that's awesome. He promises eternal life to those who believe. If you don't believe that, you're going to struggle to bring anyone to Christ. Because if you're not 100% sure, 
you know, oh, God could do it, but he doesn't always. But it says that his desire is that all would be saved, that all will come to a knowledge of him and his son. It gives us confidence in prayer. It also gives us confidence in worship. And I don't just mean singing songs, although it's a part of it. But Acts 16.25, we talks about Paul and Silas being in prison. And what do they do when they're in prison? They, they praise God and they sing hymns. Because they have confidence that the situation doesn't matter. I know I'm praising the one true God. So I'm going to do it. And what happened? God rescued them. God delivered them. And he rescued people who were in the prison. Unbelievable. So we need to have confidence in our worship. Confidence in who we worship. Amen? All righty. And lastly, it gives us confidence in our battle against sin. We still battle against sin. It's true. And we know Jesus has won the victory, right? But we still battle. But all that we need is faith in the God who has already won the victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 57 says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the, our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's death, sin, and the law. They're all strengths of each other. But in came Jesus Christ, who didn't replace the law, but who fulfilled the law, right? And all the requirements of the law are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is why everything points to Jesus Christ, because the law requires a lot of things, and Jesus fulfilled every single one. And thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Amen. So Jesus has done a lot, and we have confidence to enter into God's presence. This confidence gives us confidence in a lot of areas. And here's where this affects our situation specifically. We have to continue in that confidence. Yes. Right? Pastor Jason preached a lot of good messages. Yes. And sometimes that helps you with your confidence because you're reminded of what God is doing and that God is good. And, and we're reminded that things are happening and that God still loves us and that God is still saving people today and that God is still giving gifts to his children and that God still hears our prayers. And we're reminded of these things week after week after week and that doesn't have to stop and it shouldn't. We have to continue living in confidence. Verse 23, I realize I never read 22. Uh, so I'll read 22 and then we'll continue on. Um, it says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So that talks about coming before God with confidence. And 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We have been called to be the light of the world, right? And this church is. And we need to continue to be. Lights that aren't bright and bold 
are of no use in God's kingdom. And the Bible talks about this. Lights that don't, that, that don't shine aren't lights at all, right? And we are called to be the light of the world. We are called to hold firmly to the hope that we profess. And I think we may miss a key part there a lot of times, the hope that we profess. Profess it. Tell people about it, right? We have hope. And we just talked about that. Everything that Jesus has done has given us hope. Hope for a future, hope to be with God and to not be crushed by him, hope to, um, to see our families and loved ones again, um, hope to give God the praise that he deserves. We struggle with that all our lives, but someday we will give it. Someday we'll give God everything we have. I'm looking forward to that day. We have a hope because of everything Jesus did, and we need to profess it. We're not a light if, if we're not turned on. Just because you got a bulb doesn't mean that you were shining. Confidence and perfect faith is not always easy, though. I'm not, I'm not going to, it's not the self-willed thing. Um, we can't always just, just have the best perspective in the hardest of times. And we're going through a time, which is a little bit of a struggle, and it's not always easy to keep a good perspective. And I'm trying my best, and I'm asking the Lord for help. Because it's, it's not over. It's not even close. I mean, God is the one that matters, and God's still here. And according to this verse, we need to stick together and encourage one another. Hebrews 3.13 tells us to encourage one another daily so that no one may fall into sin's deceitfulness. And that may sound specific, too. That may, that may sound like we're talking about, um, okay, someone might fall back into um, sexual sins or sins of um, addiction or, some, or, or any type of sin, a temptation. But sin is just disobedience to God. And when we fall out of God's will and we stop doing it or we stop moping around, and we may still come to church, but, but man, I wish Pastor Jason was here. And, oh, man, I, I just wish that I knew that God was still here. When we start doing that, that's disobedience to God. And sin, sin is what is deceiving you. It's drawing you away from God. Pardon my voice. And so Hebrews 3.13 says we need to encourage one another daily. So, man, if you're not connected yet, get connected. But for those of us who are connected, which is a lot of us, we got to stick together. The Acts 2 church, which we talk about all the time, they're our greatest example. That's who we want to be, Acts 2. Acts 2 church devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Thank you for being here today. And to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And they did all this as a community. It was, they, they went house to house. They broke bread with each other. That's eating, which I like. And they prayed together. And we need to do that. We need to continue to pray for one another. We need to continue to pray for the Scousies as a group. We need to all be united in our prayers. The Bible calls for that too. When two of you, two or three of you agree with one another in prayer, whatever you ask for, it will be done for you. We got to agree on what we're praying about. 
Again, confidence and perfect faith is not always easy. Abraham and Sarah did not have perfect faith, which I think is why Sarah's laughing is mentioned. They weren't perfect at all. But they did continue in faith, and God continued to bless them. May we do the same. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. This is a good verse to sum it up and sum up our position. <clears throat> but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. We are God's house if we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. That's simple, but it takes everybody. It takes a, it's a group effort, holding on to the hope that we profess. And that once we have that, we are God's house. And we have that. And we can't lose it because we need to remain God's house. And Christ is faithful as the son over that house. And man, he needs to, he needs to remain the son over this house. Amen? And over our families and our own houses. Christ needs to remain the head over God's house. Christ is faithful he cares about his, his house, right? The Bible says that a husband ought to care about his wife the same way he cares for his own body. Anyone who hates their wife hates their own body. Same thing with Christ. We are called the bride of Christ. Christ has to love us the way he loves his own body, but that's us too, right? So either way you put it, Christ loves his house. He loves his body. He loves his bride. He watches out for his people. He intercedes for the believers. The Bible tells us that right now he's on the right hand of God, interceding for believers. We got someone on our side, and it's the most powerful name, the most beautiful name, the most wonderful name. In times of turmoil like we are now, we need a faithful Christ. We need a powerful name to call on, and we have one, someone who's done it all. Remember everything he's done. He's already done it all. All we need to do is have faith in what he has done. And he is faithful over his house. So in this time, things will be tough. But we have each other. And Jesus will remain the head. And that's